Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio show, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those those of us in the education community and beyond on important education issues of the day, a conversation that brings the state leaders to you, and I hope that you feel free to join in on the conversation. My name is Ray Penny, and I'll be your host this morning. Today, we will not only be taking your calls, but we also have our chat room open. I think this will give you another venue, a vehicle in which to participate in the show. Anne-Marie Smith will be taking the calls this morning. Anne-Marie, can you please explain the process? Yes, Ray. To call in, dial 1-347-989-8904. When you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1. That will indicate on my switchboard that you are ready to ask a question. I'll get your name and your question or topic. Also, if you are on the phone line, I will ask you to turn down the volume on your computer and only listen on the phone since there will be a delay and it is confusing. If you are just listening on your computer, we do have a chat room feature that you can log on to. We will be monitoring the chat room and will pass on some of the comments or questions to our speaker. To log on the chat room, you will need to register with Blog Talk Radio. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Any of us who are involved in education in New Jersey know that we are in a time like no other. Reforming public education in almost every way it's delivered is being discussed and discussed seriously by both the governor and the legislature. We are talking about how we evaluate, retain, compensate teachers. We are talking about school choice in its many forms, whether it's school vouchers, charter schools, or inter-district choice. Much of the reform is obviously being pushed by the governor, but it uh, it should be pointed out that this reform agenda is not the position of just Republicans. President Obama's positions are not that much different from Governor Christie's when it comes to education. While the education reform movement may enjoy support from both political parties, that does not mean that it enjoys widespread support in all its aspects. Some people are concerned that it might not be effective at all, and others are concerned that even though some of the concepts are valid, that we're moving much too quickly in the process and we need to slow down and do it right. Here to join us this morning is Gordon McInnes, a former Assistant Commissioner of Education, uh, as well as a State Senator and Assemblyman in New Jersey. Gordon, if you read some of the newspapers in New Jersey or some of the articles in NJ Spotlight, has been critical of some of the education reform agenda initiatives. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you, Ray. It's great to have you here. Um, Gordon, I've read some of the things that you put together. But let's get to – if we're going to reform education, uh, the people who want to reform it have to make a case that there's at least something wrong with the current educational system, that it's failing either some of our students or in some areas it's failing our students. Um, you seem to be challenging that notion right from the, the get-go that not all our schools are failing. Uh, am I reading you correctly in that? Well, certainly the the best information available to uh, people in New Jersey is the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and uh, which is given every two years to fourth, eighth, uh, and, and eighth graders, and and uh, New Jersey uh, is the best performing state in the nation, except for Massachusetts, year after year. Uh, so we have a lot to be proud of. That does not mean that uh, critics are incorrect. Uh, the fact is that we have school systems that do not operate effectively. 
We have schools that fail the children who attend them, uh, and they tend to be schools that uh, where in poor neighborhoods where where there's concentrated poverty. Uh, that requires attention. We should not be satisfied uh, with with what's going on in all of those schools. Uh, so it's a mixed picture, and and it's mixed. But here's here's what's missing in the conversation. We should be proud of the fact that New Jersey kids do as well as they do. This should be something we advertise nationally. This should be a part of our economic growth plan for New Jersey. Business people across the country should know if they locate their business in New Jersey, their their employees are going to be able to send their kids to some of the best public schools in the in the country. That's a great magnet for attracting attention and business. Yet we continue to get this conversation from the governor and other critics of, of education that this is close to a failed system. That makes no sense to me at this time of economic peril. So what you're saying is, um, if I'm hearing you correctly, that this, for lack of a better term, a drumbeat of the reform effort and maybe the negative connotations it puts on the entire educational community is not helping the economic development of the state because it would attract people to come to New Jersey to know that, uh, yeah, if I move to New Jersey, I'm going to get a good education for my kids. Sure, and look and look what happens within New Jersey. If you're uh, if you have the means and and you're new to the state or you're already here and you want to buy a house someplace uh, and you want to buy a house where your kids are going to get a good education, you will pay a premium. This is worth something. Uh, and yes, property taxes are high, and yes, it's a, a high cost area to live in. But uh, to to most families, this is a, an investment worth making, and it's certainly worth making uh, in in the eyes of the taxpayers uh, who who have to shoulder the burden for most of the costs uh, for uh, in terms of high property taxes and in terms of high state taxes. Uh, but we've made uh, the judgment over and over and over again in this state that high-quality education is worth the investment, and it pays off forever. And uh, and so, as I said, this should be a source of pride, not a source of uh, constant carping uh, that our education, uh, education, the public schools in New Jersey are, are, are failing us. Uh, that does not mean that all public schools are successful. It does not mean that all public schools are effective. The governor is right. It's a mixed picture. But I would wish he would use the strength of our public schools as a as a point of pride in advertising about New Jersey's attributes and qualities. All right. Uh, we'll probably get back to that topic. Um, you agree... Uh, well, I guess you agree that we do have to change some things. We, we want to improve, even our best schools we want to improve. Uh, the administration is pushing to improve the quality of the teacher in the classroom. That to them to and to a lot of people the, is the most important factor in the child's education is the teacher in front of, their, in front of them. Uh, but to do that, there's a lot of multifaceted proposal here. One of the components is changing the way we evaluate teachers. Uh, what the administration is pushing, and, and many others, not just the administration, is basing teacher evaluations and how we judge teachers on student achievement. And isn't that the job of the educator? So is that a good way to go? It's uh, conceptually a good way to go, uh, but here's the problem with it. Uh, we don't know how to do it, and uh, the governor and the commissioner of education need to acknowledge that. 
Yes, it's true. We have some experiments going around, uh, going along in in uh, some cities in Denver, Colorado, and New Haven, Connecticut, and Rochester, New York. Uh, but the but, but we don't know what the conclusion uh, is. We don't know how we don't know how you can connect student performance to teacher performance in a way that is fair, that is consistent, that is reliable, and is also effective. That hasn't been proven yet. And the governor and the commissioner should acknowledge that and stop pretending that we have the information we need to get, judge 50% of a, of a teacher's evaluation on student performance. Start with this fact, and I think you, you mentioned this in your conversation uh, with the governor. Only 18% or so of New Jersey's teachers teach either a grade level or a subject, which is subject to standardized testing. What do you do about the other 82%? And when you ask that question, there's no answer because we haven't developed a system that provides student performance information in a way that can be used to evaluate teachers. So the idea of improving our current system of evaluation, spot on. I absolutely agree with anybody who would say that. Should it receive the priority it receives? No, I don't think so. Do we have... Do we have the technology? Do we have the experience? Do we have the information that we need to do it in a fair and reliable way? No, we don't. So this is something that needs to be addressed. It's something that should be addressed in a way that brings all the stakeholders together, including teachers, uh, teacher unions and, and, and taxpayers. But we should not be, believe that uh, we, we have a ready answer that can be implemented next year as the, as the commissioner is advancing. Uh, staying on this topic for a second, the, the administration has uh, some pilot districts looking at implementing this type of evaluation system. Because I, I think even a, I've even heard some administrative, administrator uh, officials say that they know that this is not being done na nationally anywhere, really. Um, but after this year, one year of doing this pilot district, they're going to try to implement it. Do you think that timeline's a little aggressive or fast? Yes, yes I do. Uh, first of all, you've had districts that have been doing this for uh, more than uh, more than several years. You've had districts in Texas, uh, both Dallas and Houston, have been doing it. Uh, and by the way, what happens is that uh, some of these experiments be discontinued because of lack of funding because of the fall off in state aid because the federal money is not available so uh it it's uh clear path and the idea that we can find out from 10 districts uh given the rules that the commissioner set doesn't make any sense and let me let me let me give an example there is a uh a teacher evaluation and uh, decision-making system that's been in place in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is arguably the best school district in the United States. It's a big district, 150,000 kids. It's a diverse district. A third of the kids are Title I eligible, and two-thirds of the kids go to uh, are, are from affluent families. So it's an interesting place. They've had a they've had something in place for 10 years uh, where where principals and teachers form a council and meet to evaluate uh, teachers based on principal recommendations. And this has worked out very well. It's been accepted 
by the by the teachers union in Montgomery County. It's been accepted by the leadership of the Montgomery Public Schools, and it has led to a great improvement in first of all the number of teachers who are found wanting. Right now, and here's where I agree with the governor and the commissioner, our present system is broken. Any system of large numbers of employees that finds that 98% of them are either good or great is obviously is obviously not an effective system. So I agree that we need to improve this, uh, and it would be important to improve the evaluation of teachers and principals. To rush it, to, to base it on a set of criteria which excludes the opportunity to to uh, have a district try out the Montgomery County approach, for example, is short-sighted and is 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 an incomplete effort at experimentation. So I I do believe that it's <clears throat> excuse me Ray it's being rushed, and it's being rushed with a uh, a set of assumptions which cannot be supported. Thank you. Um, just to, for our listeners, if you listened earlier in the week, I had. Uh, one of the pilot district superintendents on, and it was very interesting. He does uh, do some of this already, but uh, I believe he has three or four assessments in each class uh, or now. So he has done that, but I think that would probably be additional cost to districts if they were to, to try to do that on a statewide basis. Actually, Ray, if I could, uh, Michelle Ree, who is uh, you know, considered the reformer of the century, uh, when she was superintendent in Washington, D.C., she launched a system that was based half on, on uh, test results for teachers who taught a grade that was tested. Uh, and for other teachers, 80% of it was based on a classroom observation. Uh, to do that in a, in a fair way, uh, she employed 35 master teachers who uh, each brought some uh, sort of uh, subject area or grade level expertise, and each of them conducted uh, classroom observations uh, twice a year for each teacher. Uh, that was accompanied by three observations a year by the principal. Uh, but the cost of it is impressive because these are very experienced uh, people with a lot of knowledge, say, about physics or a lot of knowledge about uh, foreign language instruction or special education. I mean, just think about all the specialties that are involved in education. And so they do not come cheaply. And for a district which is just a little bit bigger than Newark's, uh, she had to have uh, 35 uh, of these master teachers in place. That expense needs to be made because classroom observation is tricky. It can be quickly subjective. It needs to be something that helps teachers instead of being just a evaluation of teachers. It needs to, you need to be able to use the information, right, and say, look, these lessons are not attracting uh, student attention. How can we improve it? Or this content is actually uh, too superficial and kids need to go deeper. Whatever the criticism or the, the, the observation might be, it should be a source of improvement for the teacher. So it's a good thing to try. Uh, we don't know if the Washington, D.C. system is going to work. That's my complaint, that, that there are all these things that are going on that are at an experimental level, and we need to get better information before we uh, jump in and say, here is the, here's the template for uh, an improved teacher evaluation system. All right, before I move on, so I guess you're 
if I'm wrapping up your thoughts, uh, a good evaluation system might be costly. Uh, we probably have to take our time and do it right uh, and start on a small scale uh, before moving on to the large scale. And include other other approaches to evaluation that do not incorporate this 50% okay. based on student achievement. Okay. One of the other uh, tied pretty closely to teacher evaluation is tenure reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, why shouldn't we reform tenure? And you mentioned the numbers before uh, about where everyone gets good or great uh, yep. evaluations. Uh, since this is the only the profession that seems one of the few professions that has this type of protection. Uh, well, I, again, I agree with the governor and, and the commissioner. I think we do need to improve uh, the process for evaluating people for making the tenure decision. Uh, we probably need to extend it. That is, it, you need to have more than three years' uh, experience before you're granted tenure. We certainly need to in, uh, uh, increase the specifics of why somebody would be uh, challenged if they're tenured in terms of uh, behavior. I mean, right now it's very general, very vague, and I think Senator Ruiz has legislation in that would make that more specific and cover some things that uh, everybody would agree on should should lead to dismissal. Uh, and I'm not against uh, what has uh, been proposed conceptually, which is you know, tenured teachers should be reviewed, uh, and if they're found to be ineffective for two years running, then they lose the protection of tenure. That's not, uh, as in concept, a bad idea. It comes back to the same problem we have when talking about teacher evaluation. How do you do that in a way that is affordable, <laughs> reliable, consistent, uh, and effective? And uh, I don't think the governor or the commissioner have an answer to that question because I don't think anybody does yet. And I think we need to keep exploring it, trying things out, but we should not be uh, jumping in with both feet with this uh, proclamation that we've uh, solved the problem. Uh, let's say on the issue of staffing, and it's not really part of the education reform movement, but uh, and I know you've been a critic of the, uh, of the governor's uh, superintendent cap. Yes. Uh, why have you been critical of that? Because I believe, you know, in most other areas, the governor is very conservative uh, and and uh, supports the Tea Party on a lot of their measures and supports the Republican Party's uh, belief in the power of the marketplace and that the marketplace ought to decide things much, much more than it uh, than it does in this country and that uh, and that uh, government should step back well there's a marketplace for education leaders educational leaders uh, and we should recognize that there is so New Jersey is in competition we're in competition with every state in the union to attract good good uh, job job creating businesses that are high value added jobs that compensate compensate people well uh, and we have a huge advantage, and that advantage is that we live in the in the largest consum- in the middle of the largest consumer market in the world. Uh, we are uh, close to New York City and to Philadelphia. We have advantages that no other state has, and we're not we're not taking full advantage of it. One of the things that we have is the presence of lots of great towns that are close to New York in the north and Philadelphia in the south that are convenient to both places where there's public transportation, where there are pleasant communities and lively commercial districts and great public school systems. 
And there are such places in Westchester County, New York, and Long Island, New York, and Southern Connecticut, and Fairfield County. And there are places like Rye and Scarsdale and Roslyn and Great Neck and all these places where where the towns compete to draw people to them who want to have great public schools. And we have those places too, Westfield and Mountain Lakes and Summit and Ridgewood. and there, you, could, you could reel off dozens of names in New Jersey. They're competing for educational leadership with all of those towns in New York and Connecticut. You cannot compete if you start off with a salary that is $100,000 below the average in Westchester County. You're not going to be able to hold the good superintendents you have, and that's being shown right now. So we have taken a step, presumably in the name of saving us property taxes. The total savings, even with the governor's estimate, I think is something like $9 million dollars. <laughs> against a property tax for education that uh, and and state aid which is 25 billion using his numbers you're talking about pocket change on it's not noticeable that cannot be really the rationale for it and in the process we're going to harm and it won't happen right away we're going to harm some of the highest performing public school districts in the in the nation because they're not going to be able to attract the kind of scarce creative leadership that you need uh, to, to manage these systems. And that is a another reason uh, in terms of this economic condition today that uh, the governor should be going in the other direction. He should be encouraging he should be encouraging great educators to want to be running these systems in New Jersey instead of discouraging the good educators that we have from staying. Doesn't make any sense. That almost, if I'm hearing you right, that goes back to your, almost your first point of publicizing the good schools as a, for our economic reasons as well as educational that's reasons. That's right. That's so right. So, if you ruin, uh, not ruin, that's a bad term, but if you hamper our best districts, you hamper that effort. Absolutely, and and there are there are a number of things the governor has done. First of all, his, his blanket criticism of, of public schools in New Jersey and and uh, the superintendent's cap. And the fact that, and here's one I would add, and this is not the governor alone because the legislature cooperated in it, a 2% levy, uh, cap on, on property tax levies. That's a, that's a sensible thing to do. However, there is no uh, waiver for special education costs, which is the highest, uh, is, is the biggest cost driver in the increased cost of education. And the reason that it needs to be waived, in addition to the fact that it it is it is continuously uh, bringing greater cost to to our public school systems, is that it's a federal mandate. Public school systems have no choice in this. And what it's going to mean is that we're going to, as the cap uh, operates in the uh, out, in the out years. We're going to continue to erode our investment in general education for kids who are uh, for gifted and talented programs for everything else that school systems do because school systems have no choice but to but to spend the money for, required for special education because it's something in federal law which trumps state law and it's been enforced actively by the by the federal uh, judi judicial system. So I think that's a I think that's a mistake. I think it could be corrected. It should be corrected uh for for the benefit of everybody in New Jersey. 
We're talking with Gordon McInnes. Uh, if you want to call in and ask a question, dial 1-347-989-8904 and press the number 1. Let's move on to school choice because that's uh, been very big for the, the governor and uh, in the, in the legislature. Yep. Um, they have the Opportunity Scholarship Act, which some people will call a, a voucher system. Uh, what are your issues? Uh, we've talked before about this. I know mm-hmm. you have uh, some serious issues about this. What are your uh, concerns with this act? Well, my first concern is that at a time when uh, state support for public schools has been uh, declining as a percentage of all costs, uh, and, and and by the way, this is not – uh, a malicious act by the governor, but the first year he reduced state aid by, what, $900 million. Uh, I think he had to. It's the largest uh, category of spending in the state, and, and at a time of of a great recession, uh, that category has to suffer along with everybody else. That's not my problem. My problem is the same month that he introduced his budget cutting state aid by $900 million, he endorsed and pushed hard for the enactment of a voucher program that would take money from the from the state treasury and give it to non-public schools. And this is a, another example of, of the governor mistreating a great opportunity, which is to use public education in New Jersey as a magnet for people instead of, of casting blame on it uh, consistently and saying that we can afford to take money that otherwise might go to public education and we'll give it to non-public schools. So my first problem with the voucher program is that it deprives public education of, of money, which at, at this time is very scarce and where, it sh- where the priority should be on, on our public schools. The second problem is that the the bill that has been introduced and uh, passed through the Senate um, committee is uh, a bill that it does not address the problem that its proponents say they're trying to solve. Here's the problem that they say they want to solve. You have 200 very low-performing schools, 100,000 kids uh, who, who attend those schools. They need to be given a safety valve. They need to be given an exit pass. That's their argument. So you look at where those schools are, and you look at what opportunities are available for non-public schools, and they're very limited. But the bill is drawn so that most of the money doesn't go to the kids in those chronically failing schools. Most of the money will go to kids who are already in private schools, which makes no sense. Uh, Second thing is that, or the third thing, is that there are no standards for the schools that are receiving these these kids from from failed public schools. There are no standards that require, for example, uh, reporting test results for all their kids to see that, in fact, if 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 kids from a poor neighborhood in Newark attend a non-public school, that they're attending a school where where their classmates and and them will will do better. Um, so that the, the the law is drawn so in a way so we'll have no accountability by the non-public schools, and the and the fourth complaint I would have is that they have set practically no standards for the administration of this law, 
there's no money given for evaluation. There's no. I mean, it's just it's it's it seems to me a hastily drawn uh, bill that is designed to subsidize non-public schools wherever they are uh, and not deal with uh, the problems of kids who attend failing public schools uh, because most of the money, in fact, won't go to those kids. Uh, for our listeners, I, I would also add that this bill, if it does move forward, uh, my understanding is that it probably would be changed or scaled back Yes, uh, because I, I believe that the, the supporters of it want to get something passed, hopefully right. in lame duck from their perspective. Right. Um, but the other side besides the voucher is charter schools, which are here and have been successful in some places and maybe not as successful in others. Right. What do you see their role? I mean, they're supported by both political parties. Right. Um, so what do you see their role in public education? Well, actually, Ray, when I was in the Senate, I was on the Education Committee, and I was a co-sponsor of the Charter School Bill, which was enacted in 1996. And I see a role for charter schools, and I always have. Uh, and I think we can learn from them. And and I agree with what the governor said when he was appearing on your program. He said, charter schools, we ought to emphasize charter schools in places where the public schools aren't doing as well as they should, uh, in, in in the cities where... Uh, it's hard for parents to find uh, a, a, a good school, and I agree with that. Now, uh, how much should we rely on them? I, again, I agree with the governor. This is not a silver bullet, uh, and I think that's exactly the word he used. There's not one answer here. And uh, so charter schools have demonstrated something that we could learn from, and there are some very successful charter schools. They happen to be primarily in Newark. Uh, but if you look at the results for Team Academy, for Robert Treat Academy, for the North Star, uh, these are very high-performing public uh, public schools, and charter schools are public schools. Uh, they emphasize something that we we need to adapt, adopt, which is in order to teach kids who be, who bring to school such powerful disadvantages, as is true in poor neighborhoods, you need to spend more time than you need to spend with kids who come from affluent or middle-class families. And so each of those schools that that produce these, these inspiring results spend 25 to 30% more time on instruction than is true of the Newark public schools. And I think that explains why they do better, or helps to explain why they do better. The other thing that I think is true of good uh, of good public schools as well as good charter schools is that they start with a belief that these kids can learn. They start with an intensity of effort aimed at improving the academic performance of kids, which is palpable to anybody who goes into those schools. And they they continue to work with kids who are struggling. All those are lessons that have been learned in the best uh, public school districts, in the best public schools, and charter schools have confirmed that. And I think we we should learn from from charter schools. That said, uh, it the charter schools have advantages that the district schools will never have. Uh, first of all, they they uh, take kids whose parents are looking for alternatives. Uh, that fact by itself is. Uh, an indicator uh, that you can't quantify, but it's an important uh, fact. Secondly, charter schools do not have anything like 
uh, the percentage of kids who are special education, the percentage of kids who are from uh, families where no English is spoken. Uh, and interestingly, in the case of two of the, of the newer uh, uh, best-performing charter schools, they have many, many more girls than they have boys. Uh, it's a 60-40 ratio, in fact. And, and that says something about... Uh, uh, performance because girls outperform boys on the national test by a full grade level, and that makes a big difference, I think. So it's not the same as a district school. The comparison cannot be made, but it doesn't mean that charter schools shouldn't be a part of the landscape. Uh, charter schools also, uh, since you uh, the bill was passed, uh, I guess that's like 15 years ago, yep. um, they have, now have moved more into some of the suburban areas, and you have seen a from the communities there, sometimes from the school boards, sometimes from the municipalities, uh, a concern about putting uh, a, a charter school in the district that's performing well. We have districts right. like Milford, Livingston, uh, Princeton who have some issues with this um, because they look at it as a, it's a property tax issue. I don't want to speak for them, but I, I think it, yeah. it's an it's allotment of resources that they feel is – should have some community say about it. Right. How do you think about that? I mean, uh, I understand why the why uh, high-performing suburban districts are upset by either the presence or the proposed presence of charter schools. Uh, they're because they're all scrambling for for uh, tax dollars right now. Uh, when charters, uh, when the charter bill was introduced, there was not the kind of hard and fast property tax levy that we've got. Uh, so the loss of, of uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars for districts the size of Princeton or Milburn or uh, some of these high, high uh, West Windsor, Plainsboro. Uh, that loss is much more noticeable than it would have been 15 years ago. And so I understand why they're fighting it. And uh, and they should fight it. It's in the interest of their system to fight it. And, uh, and by the way, in terms of what the governor said about why charter schools are important, uh, you would think that the policy of the, of the State Department would not be to encourage uh, the uh, acceptance of charter schools in high-performing public school districts. Um, so I would I would say that the the best way, the most efficient way to handle this is to have uh, regulatory standards set for the review of charter school applicants that says, hey, if you're in a district that where kids are doing great, uh, then we're probably not going to approve your application. Okay. Uh, any other thing on how you uh, any thoughts on how charter schools should be monitored? You know, when we passed the law 15 years ago, we were in one place. Now we have 15 years of experience. Is there anything that you think we should tinker with? Well, I think that uh, uh, I think that charter schools uh, are held to a, a, a level of accountability uh, and paperwork. That is greater than uh, than that experienced by a public uh, district school, um, and uh, I'm sh I'm not sure that all of the paperwork requirements are sensible. If you look at the record in New Jersey, there have been uh, a fair number of charter schools that who have lost their charter, and 
almost all of them lost their charter because of financial or facilities issues, not because of performance issues, academic performance issues. Uh, and in fact, I can't think of one. Maybe there is one, and maybe there are two, but I can't think of one where a charter school lost their charter because the kids did not perform, or I the academic was program was weak. And uh, they should be held to that standard because this is a different. Uh, this is a different opportunity than any uh, uh, district school has, and it's a special grant of privilege, if you will, to the operators of the charter school, and in return for that, they ought to produce results. I think the governor has a task force that's recommending, not just for charter schools, but uh, a reduction of some un unnecessary paperwork, for lack yep. of a better term, for school districts, which I know – a lot of our members would probably support. Um, yep. And I, I think it, it would also go towards charter schools, too. Yeah. All the reform, or at least the, it seems to me, a lot of the reform efforts are really geared, and the governor indicated this on charter schools, but I think it, it holds. We want to improve education in some of our poorer neighborhoods, and that's where, that's where the, the seed of the idea of reforming a lot of the educational outcomes comes from. We haven't been real successful. Uh, we've had some incremental changes. How do we improve education if some of these reforms don't seem to be the right direction to go in? You know, Ray, the the problem is, and this is not a uh, this is not exclusive to New Jersey. We talk about the problem of uh, poorly performing schools in urban districts, and then we divert attention from the cause of that poor performance and don't want to talk about it. Here's the problem. The problem is that poor kids grow up without the same advantages as middle-class kids. And when they get to kindergarten, they don't have the vocabulary, they don't have the general knowledge, they don't have the familiarity with books and stories that middle-class kids have. And they, they're behind. They're behind somewhere between one and two years, even at the age of five. That's the gap that is never closed. And Kindergarten is the is getting kids ready to read, and if they don't learn to read well by the time they're in third or fourth grade, the chances of their ever reading on grade level almost disappear. And if you can't read, you can't be educated. That's the root of the problem. By the way, we know that it, particularly in New Jersey, where most poor kids have an opportunity to attend preschool, uh, followed by uh, uh, kindergarten, first, second, and third grade in a reasonably well-funded school, we have a chance to make this work. And we've seen in a number of districts, in a large number of districts, that it can work. For example, Newark and Elizabeth are contiguous. Uh, Newark and Elizabeth have about the same percentage of poor kids as measured by eligibility for free lunch. Yet, year after year, kids in Elizabeth outperform kids in Newark on the, on the very important third-grade language arts test uh, by 10 or 15 percentage points. And why is that? Uh, it's in part because the leadership of the Elizabeth schools for more than 15 years has concentrated 
on trying to close that kindergarten gap that, that I talked about and to follow that by intensive early literacy instruction in first, second, and third grade. And the result is they have a much higher percentage of kids who are ready to read and who learn to read. And they can use that then to succeed uh, in fourth, fifth, sixth, and, and, and on up. The problem of inheriting uh, kids in the fifth grade who are reading at the third grade level makes it impossible for fifth-grade teachers to do what's expected of them, which is to have kids learn content, which is much more complicated, to use their reading skills, to uh, absorb much more. But if they're reading at the third-grade level, there's no way in the world they're going to be able to handle fifth-grade content. And that's the pattern that's been repeated for decades in this country. And because we don't want to talk about the origins of the problem and concentrate on doing something about it, we continue to look to other other answers which, if done perfectly, will not solve the problem. And so we have districts in New Jersey, Union City, Elizabeth, Perth Amboy, West New York, Long Branch, East Orange, Orange, uh, where kids are performing well above what would be predicted, well above how those kids are performing across the country, that is, kids from poor families. And we should learn from that. Instead of condemning uh, as in a wholesale, well, as, uh, wholesale way, as the governor does, the failure of, uh, of uh, Abbott, Abbott programs, uh, because, in fact, in districts where, where, the, where the leadership has applied itself and may use those resources to overcome the, uh, the the problems of literacy, we have seen uh, what I would call dramatic success. And it's not enough success, by the way, but it's, it's nevertheless dramatic and inspiring. And uh, it's another example of, of uh, the, the broad brushstroke of uh, condemnation of public education, which is, uh, which is not helpful. Um, so, from your perspective now that change would probably take that's hard work it's hard uh, work Very i mean hard. it's not something that you can get overnight success for lack that's of a better right. term because uh, from your perspective and probably from a lot of people's perspective the kids before day one they're behind um okay. and if they don't get these skills early on the the gap will just get larger that's right so what you're advocating is intense reading programs, uh, intense education at the early levels, and before they get to school, pre-K. I guess you would be a preschool, strong preschool advocate for those poor districts. Absolutely, but the preschools need to be high quality. Otherwise, you're just talking about daycare, which doesn't work, or Head Start, which has not worked. You need to have high-quality preschool, You need to, and that's, that's not cheap. But we pay that bill in New Jersey. And by the way, I've criticized the governor a fair amount in our conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to praise him. He in a time of very, very tough budgets with reduced revenues, the governor has supported uh, the the appropriation for preschool in both of his budgets. And I, I applaud him for that. That is really important. I just wish he would talk about why he does that, and he doesn't. He no, understands. I... He understands that this is a, a key, because otherwise why would, why would he continue to give – preschool uh, financial support that no other program in the state's getting. He must understand it. Um, last question. Um, and I, It's unfair that I'm giving you a short amount of time on this. The school funding formula uh, was... 
I should go. The governor is looking to maybe introduce new school funding formula. Right. What do you think uh, he might go with that? I don't know. I don't know why he would not want to give the current school funding formula, which has not been fully funded yet, a chance. I think it is a sensible change to uh, what was the CIFA formula adopted in 1996. Uh, and I don't know what changes he's going to propose. But uh, since the current formula hasn't been fully funded yet, why don't you uh, why don't you try it out at a time when you can fully fund it, and then see if it doesn't uh, if it doesn't work. Uh, it also has passed muster with the Supreme Court, and why invite unnecessarily another fight over uh, uh, the the school funding uh, clause in the in the uh, state constitution? Uh, thank you, Gordon. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll probably find out about the school funding formula if he does introduce one next year. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of p people who want to talk about it then. <laughs> I'll bet. So thank you for joining me, Gordon. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Ray. That brings us to an end of another conversation on New Jersey education. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. As I always say, our kids' education is too important not to talk about. Since we have uh, New Jersey School Board Association's workshop next week, there will be no show until November. If you have an issue or speaker you think would be good in this format, please contact me via email at rpinney, P-I-N-N-E-Y, at njsba.org. And uh, thank you, and have a good weekend.